Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Or should I say, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to the greatest show on earth. Hearing those words and listening to that music conjures up images of high-wire acts, flying trapeze artists, magicians, jugglers, and clowns. One of America's favorite pastimes has always been the circus, and dominating that entertainment spectacle were the larger-than-life circus kings of P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, and John Ringling. Independently, they competed for control of the American circus. Together, they created the greatest show on earth and captivated the nation. Best-selling author Les Staniford brings to life this remarkable story in his book, Battle for the Big Top. Along with an in-depth history into the circus business, Les also writes about the dangers of running such an iconic event. His novel begins with the worst circus tragedy of all time, the Ringling Brothers Circus Fire on July 6, 1944 where the tent caught fire during a performance in Hartford, Connecticut. I asked Les to explain the events leading up to this tragedy. Well, you know, fire was always the bane of the circus because there was a lot of flammable material, straw for the animals, canvas uh, when those tents came along, and uh, the early means of illumination, candles, oil lamps, acetylene bulbs that themselves started fire. So uh, there were a lot of circus fires. But the worst in history was took place in Hartford, Connecticut in 1944, and over uh, 600 people died. The uh, big top went up in a matter of seconds, really, less than five minutes from the time they saw flames running up one guy rope until the whole tent was nothing uh, but flames and collapsed on onto people and you know terrible injuries and day more lives lost in the Hartford Great Hartford Circus Fire than than uh, Hartford people who lost their lives storming the beaches of. Of Normandy, oh they my say. Gosh, that's incredible. Terrible thing. They had replaced the tent the night before because the new tent was leaking, and they said, "Well, get the old tent." And the old tent, said to say, was waterproofed with a mixture, really, of gasoline and paraffin uh, and benzene. The benzene and the gasoline used to dissolve, help dissolve the wax so that it could, you know, soak into the canvas and, have like and a make coating. it water, yeah, yeah. make it uh, waterproof it so that the rain wouldn't come in. Well, that's that's what the flame hits, and it, it was over in seconds. That's just terrible. That's awful. It could have ended the circus uh, then and there. They, uh, in fact, was the Ringling Brothers combined show, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, greatest show on earth. It was the the big show. The authorities in Hartford threatened to impound everything that belonged to the circus until there was reparation made. And the owners of the circus, uh, John Ringling North, John Ringling's nephew, came and said, look, if you shut us down and you won't let us go out, all that stuff that you want to put under lock and key won't pay a bit of the claims that are going to come in. If you let us go out and keep performing, I promise you that we will make good on our obligations here. And uh, so the city fathers talked it over and thought, well, that makes sense, and they let them go. 
the circus went out and performed uh, through the rest of the remainder of the Second World War and, and afterwards. And in the four years that followed, every single claim was paid to the claimants, uh, the victims of that fire, so it was wise. And the circus limped along under the Norths, despite the onset of television and movies in mm-hmm. the 40s and the 50s. And they finally sold it to the Feld family in the 60s. And the Felds kept it going for 50 years until <laughs> 2017. I attended that very last ah, performance okay. of the circus uh, where the Felds came out and talked about uh, the pleasure that they had taken in, in keeping in, keeping the circus alive. And that's when I decided that I was going to uh, finish this, this story. And since this book has come out, there's been news that it's coming back, right? Well, I mean, we, minus the animals, but the Felds are bringing it back, are no they not? No more, yes, without, without elephants, yeah, without yeah, lions yeah. and tigers. But, you know, there have been mom-and-pop circuses that have been performing ever since, all around the country, Eastern Europe, South America, and they never had quite the breadth of spectacle of the, of the big show. Mm-hmm. But it, it was proof that something about the circus has had this timeless appeal to people. And so I think that that's what's being responded to here. Nobody wants to see elephants go back to work in the circus. We right, know right. a lot of things now that we didn't uh, 100 years ago. But the circus itself and what it appeals to, in essence, in my feeling is, Anything is possible. You work hard enough. You do something special. You believe in yourself. Anything uh, can be done. And attending the circus is sort of a three-hour experience in seeing people, human beings, transcend human limitations. Uh, It is. There are no special effects in the circus. Right. It's not a magic show. No, it's not. Everything that you, every amazing thing that you see happen in the circus really happen. It's athletic, it's dramatic, it's humorous, it appeals to people along a number of ways, and that's why it it appeals to the broad part. It always appealed to the broad spectrum of um, the American public that it did. Since we're in that realm right there, let's talk about this. The actual attraction to the circus really it was not just inside the tent, but the whole spectacle of their arrival as they came into town. Even when I was a kid. Uh, I was the, about to ask you, have you seen that type of spectacle? Like, I never saw the parade of, Well, you know, <clears throat> what went on in Cambridge, Ohio was uh, not what, uh, the same thing uh, that went on when they paraded the elephants, 20 or so of them, through the Holland Tunnel uh, <laughs> to Madison Square Garden, mind <laughs> you. But still, we went down when we knew the circus was coming to town that day. And, yeah, we would go down and watch the animals and, and the performers and the tent itself be unloaded and be carried from there the two or three miles to the place where the circus was going to be set up. And there was a uh, there was a modest parade, but there was a band, and there were pretty dancing uh, ladies and horses <laughs> and animals in cages and clowns, and it was a big deal. It was something that kids looked forward to for the entire year, and not only in my community, but around the nation. The, it, at one time, there were four big holidays in the United States, and that was Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and the day the circus came to town. And those were the days that everything closed, and there were no schools, and there were no banks open, and you went down and 
and watch the circus. Oh, that's amazing. Let's talk about the three, you know, main personalities, the, the kings of the circus here. You have James Bailey, P.T. Barnum, and the Ringling Brothers. Individually, what did they each contribute? Before Bailey came along in the early 1860s, the circus had grown up over the first half of the uh, 19th century along with the country. There were 30, 40 homegrown shows traveling, following after the advancing population as it moved across out the frontier. Uh, the circus grew up with the country, crisscrossing the frontier, and along came James Bailey, who was a masterminded organization. He said, we can make use of the uh, rail system that's now grown up and matured. I know trains backward and forward, and he did, and he figured out uh, how to move the circus around so that you could present an amazing and an enormous show in one city one night and take it to another city the very next night, even in time for a matinee and an evening show, and then do the same thing 30 or 40 or 100 miles down the road. That was his genius. And uh, P.T. Barnum had been in show business before, but he had no idea what the circus was. He was a promoter of oddities. His big act was Tom Thumb, the 29-inch tall man that he named General Tom Thumb and took him all around the United States and to Europe. He was the toast of Europe. He met with every crowned head of state in Europe, who, and they loved him. Uh, that was Barnum saying he had an emporium, a kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not right. emporium right. in lower Manhattan that was very successful. Uh, so he was an oddities guy, and mm-hmm. we'd come and see these strange, unusual things, some of which were real and some weren't. Uh, Tom, <laughs> Tom Thumb was real, but the Fiji, the Fiji mermaid, mermaid wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, and Joyce, Anyway, Joyce uh, you know, Barnum was unfazed by people who said the Fiji made mermaid is a fake. He said, well, but isn't she interesting to look at? I gave you good value for your money, so <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, stop complaining. And <laughs> Barnum gets talked into coming and helping promote another show during the 1860s, and he was, of course, very good at it. He was the showman. And uh, he got so good at it that he became the principal competitor to Bailey, whom I was just talking about. In fact, uh, when Bailey, one of Bailey's elephants, gave birth, uh, got pregnant and gave birth to the first baby elephant never born on the North American continent. So Barnum telegraphed Bailey and said, I will pay you $100,000 for Little Columbia. And instead of, what did Bailey do? Instead of trying to jack the price up or accepting the offer, he took a picture of that of that telegram, had it made up as part of an advertisement in every major newspaper in the United States. And, and the ad read, come and see the baby elephant that P.T. Barnum himself would pay a king's <laughs> ransom for. And... Uh, I mean, of course, the crowds flocked in to see this baby elephant. And what this said to Barnum was, hmm, I may have met my match. Yep. And he telegraphed Bailey and said, why don't we meet? And uh, they were like minds, and they formed a partnership. And that was the beginning of Barnum and Bailey's circus, which became the greatest show on earth. And really pretty much had the show to themselves for the next 20 years until the Ringlings came along, these upstarts, these kids from Baraboo, Wisconsin. This whole business struggle forms the basic plot of the book. But the substance of it comes to the fact that all three of these guys, were immensely talented people who could have done other things, uh, could have promoted other things, but they came to fall, they all fell in love with the circus because they believed that they were doing, the circus wasn't just a diversion to them, the circus was important. They felt like they were giving the American public something 
that really mattered. Later on, uh, when Ringling had taken over everything, he even had a troupe of 100 ballet dancers as part of the show because he thought it would be good for Americans to come to understand what ballet was and, uh, and uh, appreciate it. Eventually, they even uh, they had a number that Igor Stravinsky choreographed where, ba- where elephants were taught to ballet dance. Uh, <laughs> Marianne Moore went to see it and pronounced herself thrilled uh, with with the effect. So what they did was incredible, amazing, and finally important in examining the circus. You're really examining what makes America tick, Mm -hmm. what really counts, uh, what we've always uh, cared about. And to come back to what you were saying, that explains why the circus is coming back. Not because there aren't bigger, better shows, Monster Jams and Disney on Ice and all that available out there. People missed something elemental in the circus that spoke to their soul. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to Florida's role in the circus. How does Florida or Sarasota in particular come into the picture? In the uh, years immediately after World War I, it was getting difficult to find enough people to work in the circus. Manpower shortage began during the war because young men went off to fight. And when they came back, they weren't necessarily uh, jumping into the labor workforce again. So the circus always been highly labor intensive. One of the ideas that Ringling, cost-cutting measures that Ringling uh, came up with was this. The uh, headquarters of the winter headquarters of the circus had always been in Connecticut where Barnum and Bailey had established their winter headquarters. Ringling, uh, after he bought Barnum and Bailey out uh, near the turn of the century, uh, went along and kept the winter headquarters there in in Connecticut. But it's cold in Connecticut in the wintertime, and the animals were shut up in barns and uh, so forth. And Ringling had traveled to Florida, had gone to Sarasota because he had some friends there, and while he was there, he had this brainstorm. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In Florida, things go on year-round. I could move, uh, I could buy some of this cheap land out in the outskirts of this little podunk town called Sarasota, make a winter headquarters for the circus, and I could let people come in and tour the grounds and watch these the elephants chomping on hay and uh, the acrobats uh, getting ready, to, uh, you know, honing their skills and charge admission and make right. money where I had previously been renting out barns and paying uh, for fuel oil to keep these elephants warm during the winter. And so that was his uh, idea, and it was a resounding commercial success. The winter headquarters in Sarasota helped transform that town into a a real destination. He built a fantastic house that still sits there, caught us on, and and a must for your bucket list if you haven't been there before, and then got interested in Sarasota as a developer. Essentially, like Henry Flagler created Palm Beach, John... uh, Uh, Ringling created Sarasota, and remnants of the culture of the circus exist to this day. There's still a year-round circus out by the Fruitland, uh, I think it is, exit on I-75. They're in Sarasota, and a lot of circus people still living there and and keeping the circus tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll have to go there, Michelle. You bet. To do that, definitely. The community was well supportive. Like when he first came, I was wondering how the community would feel about bringing these big animals. And when he first came, there were only a very few wealthy people who were using that as a a vacation retreat, winter vacation retreat 
and they sniffed the yeah, circus, sure. yeah. circus people. We don't, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the circus had always had a little bit of tawdry side to it. And then they met John Ringling, whose force of personality was amazing. He was the toast of New York society. Mayor Jimmy Walker was a regular guest at Cotizon, as were uh, Tex Rickard, the promoter of Madison Square Garden, and so many entertainers. Ringling was an electric uh, personality that people just loved to be around. Did I read somewhere that you were at the Ritz-Carlton and your wife called you over? That's actually how you kind of got the idea. Ringling, one of the things he wanted to do was build a big Ritz-Carlton hotel that he thought would be the centerpiece like the Breakers is up in Palm Beach to bring moneyed people down from the Northeast in the winter, and uh, it never worked out. When it came to that idea, the, the Florida crash of 1926 had just ascended. So he had about half finished a Ritz-Carlton uh, and the sat out there as an old shipwreck for oh, 30 years before it was finally turned down. And developers later came along. My wife, uh, I'd gone over to give a, uh, a talk about another book I'd written of, about Henry Flagler. Well, I knew none of what we'd been talking about at the time. And when I was finished with my uh, speech, uh, I was ready to go. I had the car brought up and Kimberly came in from walking around. She'd heard me enough, so she was taking a walk while I was talking and she said I've got something you got to see and I said honey the car's here we got to I want to go play golf <laughs> and uh, she said no no, no you got to see this and dragged me out to on the grounds and there was this obelisk with a plaque that told something of the story about well, nearly 100 years before it had been John Ringling's intention to build a Ritz-Carlton here in Sarasota and not till the turn of the 21st century did it take place and you're standing there in the midst of what was once his dream and I said John Ringling, he was a circus guy. What was right, he doing building exactly. a hotel in Sarasota yeah. anyway? And asking those questions, I began to pull on that thread of history's uh, sweater. And this whole book opened itself up to me. And I said, you know, if I don't tell the story's about to close. This was 2015. The elephants had just been put out to pasture by uh, the felds. And I said, you know, this is not going to be with us anymore. And if somebody doesn't sit down and put all this into some kind of shape, I think it might all just blow away like the dust. And uh, that's what gave me the idea. And I said, well, let's see. And the more <clears throat> I researched, the more interested I became. And that's, that's how we come to be here today. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Les, for being on the, on the show. What's actually next for you? Thank what you for you having me. I've got a, uh, I'm working on a project about an unknown abolitionist, Alan Pinkerton. People know about the Pinkerton detectives and uh, what a conservative force they became later in the country. But during Pinkerton's lifetime, he was quite a liberal guy and a major champion of the abolitionist movement, very central to the working in the Underground Railroad, and even served as a spy against the Confederacy during the Civil oh War. Oh my gosh, and so, sounds amazing. That's the unknown abolitionist, and that's one thing. But before that, I'm working on a memoir. It's called Seven Dogs to Enlightenment, uh, Me and the Dogs in My Life. So that's oh. a much different book, and that's going to come before Mr. Pinkerton gets his due. Oh, that sounds amazing. Thank you, Les. Thank you so much. That was Les Standerford talking about his book, Battle for the Big Top, which tells the story of P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, and John Ringling, and how they created the greatest show on earth. As we've learned from Les, the Ringling Brothers' legacy still lives on in Sarasota, Florida. But did you know that Sanford has quite the showbiz history as well? 
From colossal circuses to Wild West shows and early tourist attractions, this small town, once known as the celery capital, is where Central Florida's entertainment history began. This is an excerpt from Charlie Carlson's book, Showbiz. From operas and colossal circuses with big tops seating 10,000 spectators to the first theme park, Sanford was once Central Florida's amusement and entertainment capital. Whether it was the human fly daring to climb the courthouse building, silent movie houses, or Orange County's first fairs, people flocked to Sanford to be amazed, mesmerized, and entertained. Would you believe it if someone told you that hundreds of elephants have lumbered through downtown Sanford? Or that a tribe of Australian Aborigines once danced in the corner of Mellonville and East First Street? Would you believe that one time in 1920, long before Sanford had a zoo, more than 1,000 exotic animals were exhibited on the lakefront, including camels, hippos, polar bears, seals, sea lions, and giant man-eating rats from Bonero? A steam calliope? Clowns? Well, by now you have figured out where this is all going, and it's all true. Since 1890, at least 30 circus parades varying in length have rolled and marched through downtown Sanford. To put this into perspective, it means that at least 200 elephants have walked down First Street, along with untold numbers of walking and caged animals and horses by the hundreds, pulling colorful floats to the show grounds. Sanford's first circus-style tent show was in January 1886, when Huffman's greatest 25-cent show on earth came to town and set up at the northeast corner of Magnolia Avenue and 2nd Street. Frank Huffman billed his traveling show as an athletic congress under the canvas, compromising leapers, tumblers, acrobats, high-wire acts, and the world's smallest acrobats. The Huffman Show, which carried no animal attractions, moved its entire equipment and performers by steamboat. Basically, Huffman was tapping the smaller markets that were of no interest or inaccessible to larger shows. His main territorial grounds were the St. John River settlements from Palatka down to Sanford. By 1890, the Jacksonville, Tampa, and Key West Railroad had extended its tracks from northeast Florida down to Tampa. This opened up new territory for circus agents who immediately went looking to play a town south of Jacksonville. It had to be a town with enough residents to fill a big top, a place with good rail service and central to smaller communities from which to draw patrons using railway excursion fares, and perhaps a place with hotels to accommodate visitors. Sanford certainly fit the bill. It was the main hub of railroad and steamboat transportation south of Jacksonville with rail connections to several outlying settlements of potential circus fans. Sanford also had several nice hotels and rail sidings close to town for unloading equipment. Agents had no doubts about Sanford being the center of an untapped circus market. On November 16, 1890, the John Robinson Circus played Jacksonville after traveling direct from Madison, Wisconsin. When it finished, it loaded its trains and moved south to become the first big railroad circus to ever play Sanford. The show's 430-foot-long by 200-feet-wide big top could seat 11,000 people. This show had grown considerably from its beginning 70 years earlier in South Carolina when it roamed the back roads of the South with six wagons, 15 performers, and one ring under a 75-foot tent. 
The Robinson Show eventually grew to railroad size and was one of the few circuses to carry a giraffe, as they required special transportation accommodations due to their long necks. John Robinson's show also brought to town more strange animals and exotic people than Sanford folks could ever imagine, including mounted Zulu warriors from Africa. Needless to say, Sanford soon found itself bitten by the circus bug. This is just the beginning of the types of entertainment that came through Sanford. There were Wild West shows, medicine shows, street exhibits, fairs, and carnivals, just to name a few. But since we're talking about the circus... I now turn to Charlie's curious entertainment trivia from Sanford's showbiz past. Was a dance ever held at the City Hall for Little People and Siamese Twins? Yes, indeed. As weird as it may sound, it really happened on January 6, 1921, when city officials hosted a Bon Voyage dance at the Sanford City Hall for a group of little people and a pair of Siamese Twins. They were sideshow performers from the Johnny J. Jones Carnival that was in town for the 1921 Midwinter Festival. The strange guests of honor were retiring after many years in show business, and Jones, along with city officials, threw a retirement party for them. Was America's last real circus parade held in Sanford? On November 18, 1960, the Christiani Brothers Circus held a parade in Sanford, Florida. The parade included 15 circus floats, elephants, llamas, a hippo, horses, a steam calliope, clowns, and other performers, along with the Sanford JCs dressed in costume, the Seminole High School Band, the Sanford Junior High Band, the Lyman High School Band, and the Eustis High School Band. The procession formed at City Hall on North Park Avenue and marched to the old clock where it turned eastward down First Street all the way to Mellonville Avenue, then south to the Christiani Big Top pitched at the intersection of Celery Avenue. The parade attracted what was said to be one of the largest crowds in the city's history. 5,000 people lined the parade route to witness the gala event. Here's the big question. Was this the last real circus parade in America? According to noted circus historian Fred Dallinger Jr., director of historic resources and facilities at the Circus World Museum in Baraboo, Wisconsin, it depends on how you define a real circus parade when trying to rank Sanford in parade chronology. Historically, the last known old-fashioned circus parade was staged by the Cole Brothers Circus in 1939. By old-fashioned, it means with horse-drawn wooden parade wagons with carved ornamentation. In the 1940s, Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey held parades to promote the sale of war bonds. In 1949, Cole Brothers staged a parade to commemorate Delavan, Wisconsin's circus heritage. In 1955 and 56, the King Brothers Circus routinely held street parades using their trucks to attract fans to their shows. Then came the 1960 Christiani Brothers Parade in Sanford. But in 1980, the Clyde Beatty and Cole Brothers Circus held a one-time parade in New Bedford, Massachusetts. There have been, and still are, circus parades for historic purposes, like the annual one presented in Milwaukee by the Circus World Museum. Also, mock circus parades are put on by civic organizations, youth groups, and sponsors of fundraising events, but none are related to a tented circus. Taking all this into consideration, then, Sanford, Florida, can safely claim to be one of the last American towns to have had a real circus parade 
Although it was a special event, it was in association with a genuine tented circus. And one more trivia question. What was the last circus-style sideshow to play Sanford? In February 2007, a tented sideshow titled Charlie Carlson's Museum of the Strange and Unusual set up on the grounds in front of the Sanford Museum as part of the museum's 50th anniversary celebration. The sideshow featured illusionists like Harry Wise, a belly dancer, a mysterious hoodoo woman, a sword-swallowing pirate, the smallest dancing girl, and a P.T. Barnum-style lecturer, along with numerous exhibits of oddities ranging from a 3,000-year-old Peruvian mummy to the body of a space alien. Carlson Sideshow, normally used in street festivals in Florida and Georgia, was a scaled-down version of the old sideshows of the past. As of this writing, and with old-time sideshows going out of business, this tented exhibition is likely to remain on record as the last sideshow to play Sanford. And I leave you with a quote from Charlie. Life is like a circus. You can choose to be in the center ring or sit in the audience and watch the show. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlo Weird show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Here's Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlo Weird Street team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with hashtag SoFlo Weird Street Team. Just send us a message on social or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlo team in our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. Thanks, Michelle. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.